Welcome to the RevTech Revolution podcast. Today's episode is hosted by Betsy Peters. She's talking with David Goldstein, GCA Strategy and Insights at Johnson & Johnson. Join us as they discuss the significance of trust when making data-driven decisions, how curiosity drives innovation, and how David's experience analyzing data for political campaigns informs his decisions in the corporate world. All of this and more on the RevTech Revolution podcast. Hello, David, and welcome to the RevTech Revolution. Hi, Betsy. Thank you so much. I'm really excited to be here. You have had a really fascinating background that got you to your current role at J&J. Tell us a bit about where you developed your skills and how being involved with politics really sharpened your data-driven approach. Yeah, that's a great question. I really uh, cut my teeth in the political world first and foremost, and then kind of graduated from there um, into much more corporate strategy, uh, which is obviously what I'm doing now. I think the advantage for doing a career that way, starting in politics, moving into corporate, is just the nature of the campaigns that are run in both. In a political campaign, you have this really brutal binary where either you win or you lose on one day. Um, with corporate campaigns, it's just not, they're, they kind of stretch out over a very long period of time. There's all these different elements. I think what that does is when you're on a political campaign, everybody is attenuated to the numbers, the data. Everybody wants to know what's the current polling, what what is the current field data, what's the current, and it's not just you know the high level staff. It's even down to the volunteers um, who are just obsessed with the numbers and if what is happening is actually working, and if it's not, what has to be pivoted on or switched to get those numbers to improve. I think what happens in a corporate campaign, because you don't have that attenuation, is a lot of people kind of take a bit of a step back and say, you know what, my little area is fine, it's going well, um, I'm doing my part, and they're not as you know holistic in their consideration for what's happening, they're not as obsessed with the details, of not only what they're doing, but what the larger campaign is doing. So I think having somebody like me around um, and my orientation to things is to look at numbers every single day, multiple times, and try to figure out very, very quickly what can be changed if the numbers need to be improved upon, if our numbers are good, what do we need to keep them staying high? That makes a lot of sense because uh, there's a lot of research about neurobiology saying that flow follows focus. And so just the ability to get into a flow and try and problem solve is probably so much more acute when you're in a political environment than in something like a long-term campaign. Yeah. yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So how do you culturally overcome that? How do you build a data-driven culture in an organization where those decisions are based um, on kind of longer-term evidence than shorter-term evidence or even intuition or opinion? Uh, which sometimes our our guests are dealing with. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think that, you know, the big thing is there has to be a tremendous amount of leadership uh, from on high, right? Um, the CEO, the C-suite, they have to make it clear that the old way of doing things is not acceptable. You know, with the massive amounts of data that are coming in, it needs to be made actionable and strategic. 
um, and everybody has to get on this boat. If there are exceptions to that rule, if there are teams or divisions who are allowed out of that, um, it really undercuts the message and it sends the message to teams that they don't really have to do this as long as, you know, overall performance or, or something like that is good. And the dangerous thing about that is it's really short-term thinking. Uh, we've seen time and time again, teams get obsessed with very short-term metrics and totally drop the ball when it comes to the long-term. Um, and, you know, I've always said, but <laughs> with respect to the, the, the hand that rocks the cradle, it's really the fingers that are on the purse strings um, that really can rule the world. And so I think making it clear to people that budgets are going to be cut if key metrics aren't hit can be the stick. And the carrot can simply be you guys can do better performance, you guys can be a better team, and you can get much, much more uh, optimal results by having this database strategy uh, than not having it in place. So I think both those pressures should align to force teams to basically up their game when it comes um, to data and tech. Yeah, good, good points. Does that, has, have those two things been uh, sufficient for you to get people to move from kind of that longer term thinking around campaigns, corporate campaigns, to something shorter term, like checking data on a daily basis to see which way the wind's blowing type of thing? Right. Um, how, how do you think about the, that orientation to time? Right. Yeah, I think that, you know, I think the other thing that can really help is uh, kind of starting to a certain extent small and then letting that kind of expand on its own outward. And what I mean by that is the C-suite CEO should always have an idea of which teams tend to be a little bit more innovative, a little bit more tech savvy, um, and what the CEO can do is basically use those teams to, you know, kind of get the engine started on moving to a database culture simply by socializing their results better and their behaviors better. You know, if other teams start to see that, then they can really start to understand why that pressure is coming down from on high, why all these new resources are being made available to them. And it should create a certain amount of jealousy you know, and possibly even worry that, you know, they're getting ahead of us when there's no reason for them uh, to be. And so I think there's, there's a lot of fear, you know, with managers a lot of times in admitting that they're a little bit scared of a new approach. You know, big data just by itself can be a fear invoking term. Um, but I think if you see it in your peer set and you can get a very up close um, and very, you know, uh, uh, results that you can believe in because you know that team, you know what they do. I think that makes it very easier for you to accept and for you to ask the questions necessary in order to get those practices into your own team and really start to up level what you're doing. So, is there an example in your background of this <laughs> type of cultural challenge that you can share with us, even if? Names are redacted to protect the innocent. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, there was one time I was working with a major nonprofit organization, and they had a bit of an insight that maybe, you know, they should worry about their brand health just like any kind of corporation does. 
And what was extraordinary is we introduced, you know, brand health as a metric and started to talk to the teams about it. And one of their top people who stood wait on that, stood up and basically said, I will never be held to this metric ever. I don't want anything to do with it. I respect the fact that's where this organization is going, but I, I, I'm not going to be held to a brand health metric. And what was scary to me was after the meeting, I, I, I spoke with my contact and I was like, so who was that guy? And he's like, well, if we're going to be involved in brand health, he's kind of the guy who's going to be in charge of uh, our brand health. Yeah. <laughs> so I was like, oh, God, shoot me. Um, <laughs> and what had happened when we went to go speak to him is that he thought his performance and his team were going to be evaluated against the company's brand health. And from his ears, he was like, that's crazy. I, I don't know what I do that feeds brand health. So the last thing in the world is I want some meta metric coming from an outside consultant to determine, you know, the size of my team, the salaries and bonuses, all the rest. Um, And so we had to, you know, have a bit of a come to Jesus moment, but we also had to explain to to him very clearly, brand health in and of itself wouldn't decide his job, right? What was important to the executive director and the board of the organization was we simply start to pay attention to it. And when I talked to him and showed him the materials and everything that was going into brand health, I was like, what this is going to give us is a number. And we are going to understand what is feeding that number and what is not. And the things that you can control, the things that you can impact, are going to be handed to you for you to develop a much bigger strategic vision than you've ever had access to before. You know, this is not, and at no point are we going to say your experience doesn't matter or this number doesn't go up by five points, you're fired. What we are going to say is this is what's working, this is what's not, so let's go with what's working and drop what's not. And we're going to do that in consultation with you. So I think, like, in that situation, you know, we, I, I was kind of called the, uh, the, the Jon Snow test, right? And not to give any spoilers away for Game of Thrones, but, you know, one of the biggest mistakes in that sh- show and books Jon Snow makes is he makes this huge organization-changing decision and doesn't really bother to tell anybody in his organization. And so they kill him. Right. <laughs> and it's that a- attitude of, you know, I, I want to change this organization, but the organization is people. Right. Um, and people make up that organization. And if you're not bringing them along and fulfilling their emotional needs and addressing their very, very basic values and concerns, they're never going to join in with you. And it's going to be a horrible experience for everyone. And it will fail. So, you know, um, Jon Snow honestly didn't know anything. I was just trying to think of an elegant way to segue with Jon Snow, so I'm glad you brought it up again. Yeah. Um, no, it's good, and it's memorable, right? Um, it, trust is everything in an organization, uh, especially when you have to move as fast as we all do these days. So uh, uh, instead of going Jon Snow, I'm going to segue down tr- on trust sure. and ask you a little bit, get a little bit more granular um, Because, of course, data-driven decision-making relies on that, right? Like, we're moving from this world where you had to trust the highest-paid person in the room or the person with who was closest to the customer about their intuition. Mm -hmm. And now we're moving towards data in a system. 
but you have to have trust in the data in the system. So I wanted to kind of go there for a little bit and talk about, you know, we all know that bad data exists in our systems. How do you manage the effect of that as you're establishing this type of culture? And are there different types of approaches that you take to that transition? Yeah, um, no, that's a great question. I think, you know, this is going to sound a bit odd. I'm not sure I've ever actually seen bad data. What, what I have come across a lot is misaligned data, right? A person has a vision. They want to put a team or an organization on a mission. And they just assume that the engineers and the other folks out there who are going to be working on pulling in um, the data understand that vision as well as, you know, the person themselves do. And that's, that's a massive mistake. And the reason it's such a mistake is because people don't understand you know, when they say unstructured data, that is very literal. And if you imagine like an unstructured building, it would just be a pile of, you know, bricks and steel and all the rest of it. It's, it's a big vat of goo, you know, <laughs> when you're actually staring across how that data sits kind of, you know, in nature. So what you have to, you know, school your engineers on and work with them very, very, very closely on is when you go in and start to put those structures on that goo and start to pull it out and analyze it and action on it and find, you know, and implement the strategy based upon that, that at every single step, the data that's coming in is the data that you actually need. Um, otherwise, you know, it's not necessarily a matter of garbage in, garbage out, but, you know, misaligned resources in and there's absolutely nothing you can build with that. So I, I think it's fundamental. I love working with data scientists. So very close with, you know, folks who code and engineers. And I think that's really helped me um, be just as crystal clear as I can on exactly what's needed and how. Because that's, that's not really understanding that from our point of view is not really what their job is. Um, and I don't think it should be. I think it should be a matter of, you know, teamwork coming together somebody with, you know, a vision, somebody with the hands to kind of reach in and make that vision possible, always aligned at working together so that it actually works. I think anything else, you're putting yourself in a very, very dangerous, flawed situation. Yeah, it's a great answer. And you kind of went in a different direction than I thought you might. So I appreciate that because I think from a design perspective and an architectural perspective, 100% what you said is correct. I guess being pragmatic Mm -hmm. Are you? Is it true that you've never really walked into a situation where there was no bad data because you weren't at the other end of that approach? No, I mean, I, I'm designed. I've walked into situations where uh, the data was not what they told me it would be because they had made assumptions and they hadn't spoken to their engineers. Um, so you know, once upon a time, I was working with um, a major hotel casino, and I was asking them about guest data. And they're like, oh, we have all that. And I was like, okay, well, what do you have? And they're like, you know, it's, they're like voter databases, but with our guests. We've got all kinds of data points, all kinds of blah, blah, blah. Um, and we survey them all the time. So, you know, we know them really intimately. And that just seemed remarkable to me because, honestly, their marketing was, was trash. And it, it wasn't effective at all. So when I went and took a look at their database, what I immediately saw some point 
the survey responses, and these are surveys on their guests, were being were pushed off and were ending up in another database. Oh, yeah. And they had yeah. lost, yeah, the matching markers between those two. Um, and then furthermore, you know, somebody had the bright idea that for storage issues, they needed to reduce the amount they were holding on each guest. So a lot of times it was just a name, you know, and maybe some additional data points like a credit card number or an email address. Um, but, you know, it's, it, it's a profound example to me of just how disconnected leaders can be from the fundamental things they need to be successful. Um, so, you know, that was a situation where, you know, it was misalignment. You know, if I had just needed people's names, that was a great data set, <laughs> you know, but yeah. it was very, it, very it's cool. almost like it goes back to what you were saying at the very beginning, where, especially in, in the corporate world where you have long-term campaigns, mm-hmm. everybody gets their own little vision of what their touch point in the customer journey is, or their part of the campaign is, and they're executing on that. And they dots that connect get thought about afterwards, not as you're designing that piece. So as you go into environments like that, what's your thought about man versus machine? Like how much do you, and when do you rely on the human to put the data in and connect the dots versus how much do you do in the background automating when it's an ongoing process versus a batch process, for example? Yeah, no, and, and you know, I think that question applies uh, to a lot, right, of, of what we're particularly seeing now. Um, I think one of our basic misunderstandings is that data can be objective, right? Um, that's what I always hear, you know, well, what's the data? The data is objective. And yeah. anybody who's spent time in data collection knows it's the furthest thing from it, right? right. We're making very subjective assumptions, of what data we need, what type of data, how to collect it, how to analyze it at each step of the way, right? Gigantic subjective guesses are being made. Yeah, and that's all in a certain context that you may yeah. not see when you're pulling it out of context. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, exactly. And But if you take a step back from it, you realize it's fine, right? But what's fine and has to be fine is that the person making those subjective decisions genuinely understands holistically and operationally and functionally what needs to be done in order to have it inform the larger picture, the larger project, whatever it might be. Um, And so when it comes to automation, you can recognize a repetitive task, you can recognize something that does need to be automated, but I never suggest anybody do that without consulting the internal experts they have on why maybe that hasn't been automated yet. Right. And why, you know, it's still done that way. Then there's hosts of great reasons and they can be anything from like, well, our computer doesn't actually have the kind of software uh, to do that to, you know, something else like, oh, well, we just don't understand the nature of automation. Um, So for me, the biggest thing with man versus machine is to get rid of the verses. Right, and just have people and machines working as closely together as power, uh, as closely together as possible, because these are force amplifiers. Right, humans can make the machines incredibly more useful, and the machines, when used correctly, right, help us to do work we could never even dream of, of uh, doing in the past. Yeah, it's like Steve Jobs' quote about um, the computer being the bicycle for the mind type exactly. of thing. Yeah, 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 exactly. And it can be a bicycle for 
the organization and the minds of a lot of people in the organization who haven't really, you know, understood it up to that point and just need a bit of education and time spent with them. Sorry. <laughs> There's the kid. <laughs> oh, buddy. <laughs> oh. Um, All right. So, so, yeah, so it's, you know, and just to riff on this a little bit more, um, you see that a lot with the current AI situation, right? AI gets talked about in both anti and pro contexts as if there's no humans involved at all, except at the very end. Right. And it's like, it's totally wrong because there's humans involved at every single step. Right. I mean, all of that data, everything going into it, all the engineering, it's human, 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 human. And when I think about the dangers of AI such that exist, I always come back to, well, it's the person wielding it. Who's the danger, not, the thing in and of itself, um, you know, past use of AI, like lookalike audiences and platforms like Facebook, where we could upload, you know, 10,000 names and then Facebook would find us a million people who looked like those 10,000. That's enormously powerful for a small business. Where it was damaging is when people took like the membership of an extreme far right party mm. in Europe, put that into the machine and all of a sudden found a million more people who would love that party if they heard about them, right? Um, yeah, that was the basis for a lot of the destabilizing measures that we've seen in digital and social over these past few years. But it wasn't intrinsic in the AI tech then, and it's not now, right? It's all no. going to be who's using it and for what purpose. Hmm. I'm going to segue away from AI for a little bit <laughs> and go into um, just let's talk a little bit about using customer data for R&D and, you know, insights and strategy in your current job. So how do you use customer data to drive strategy and um, how do you use it to understand customer needs or unmet, you know, uh, unmet markets, that kind of thing, underserved markets rather? Right. No, that's a... Um you know, it's a, it's a huge problem, right? Because there's so much customer data, you can genuinely get lost in it. Um, and I've seen that happen a lot where people, the fact that we could tap into thousands of data points on individuals is just overwhelming. Um, and I think what's important there is a good strategy should be based on customer data, but you have to be really aggressive on the type of data collection that you're using, is it surveys, is it focus groups, is it big data analysis, you know, what kind of uh, statistical approaches are they using in order to extract those insights that feed strategy really well. Um, one of the problems we always have, um, you know, it, it goes back to that whole thing, like, you know, fake laugh tracks, you know, that they use on sitcoms, you know, we all hear and we all supposedly hate have consistently been found to increase people's enjoyment of those sure. shows. But you talk to them and they're like, no, I hate that. I want you to get rid of it. So that is a continual you know, threat to the health of our customer, of basically extracting insights from our customer data, is that they're saying something when it's actually a, a deeper something else. I think for those reasons... You have to involve experts and you have to involve people who have an understanding 
of those possible failure points um, in order to push forward. And what I really try and push people now on is the fact that we can track how those strategies are doing like on a daily basis when they get in front of real actual people. And there's no reason why we can't start pulling that data in order to iterate and optimize as the strategy kind of, you know, continues forward. Um, It's an incredible approach to me because it it tells you very quickly, you know, um, (laughs) you know, that's something that was based on someone's gut or a customer data insight that maybe was true two years ago, but isn't true today. Um, whether it's actually working or not and can save you tremendous amounts of money and time and resources um, and vastly improve the efficiency of your spend. So you used a really interesting word at the very beginning of that, which was aggressive. Um, Mm -hmm. Is that a prioritization word or what do do you mean by aggressive when you're saying that? I think the... You're right. There's a a million data points that you could choose at any moment to formulate strategy. Right. But picking the right approach and almost approaching it like a cultural anthropologist, right? Like going exactly. back to people will tell you different, they'll tell you something different than what they mean often. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, tell me what aggressive meant in that context. I think it means um, being willing to challenge assumptions. I always say the most terrifying data point I see is something that reaffirms something I previously believed, right? Because your ego is always in danger of taking over. And so seeing something justify what you hoped would be true um, is a great way to get led off of what is actually going to work. And so I think that's where that aggression comes in. And just like, how do we know this? Why do we know it? Why are we saying it? What proof do we have? Like push and push and push and push and push um, until you get to a point where the success is clear. And then even at that point, pushing harder to make sure you build on that and sustain it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I think it's interesting your um, your political campaign background probably sharpens that um, because you had such a fixed endpoint of win or loss, like you said, a, a fixed binary. Um, because that platform for experimentation, at least in big enterprises, um, the way you talk about it, which is hypothesis and then test and iterate as frequently as you can until you know you've got a scale signal, mm-hmm. um, that's rare. It you know, is. It's still rare. We're, we're getting there, but it's still rare. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And that that's always been one of the ongoing things I've been interested in is the ability to be disruptive as a small entity simply because you can move faster, you know, um, than the bigger one um, that you're challenging. Yeah, interesting. Are there, um, because uh, the business J&J is in, are there any particular privacy or regulatory concerns when it comes to joining data that um, really block you from a strategic standpoint? Um, I would honestly say no, um, but that's because I fundamentally believe in data privacy and I've seen so many campaigns work that didn't have personally identifiable information, right? And so I, it's no trip to me right, to have to, you know, abide by HIPAA and to abide by anonymization of data. In fact, I'm, I'm, I'm a very deep, passionate believer. If that's what you're depending on to do well, I mean, you're, you're terrible at what you do. Um, there's, there's just no reason for it. 
so, you know, I am actually a very enthusiastic backer of GDPR and of all the rules and regulations that are put in place to protect data, uh, data privacy, uh, simply because I think the downside is tremendous, you know, for us as individuals and as a society, and the upside is questionable at best. Yeah, I was going to say, is there any case where you've um, used data responsibly via redaction or whatever the case may be that actually gave you an edge? Or you haven't even gone down that path because you don't need it? Yeah, I mean, there's always, you know, you're, I mean, to be honest, right, like there's always these random court cases, somebody's getting sued and you have to disclose a full data set and, you know, um, you just have to remember and trust yourself, they've always been an ethical researcher, and so they're not going to find anything. Um, so there's there's just that continued uh, career success. But then there's also whenever somebody says to me, well, you know, I think this is one of those times where we really have to kind of push the boundaries on PII, because honestly, it is terribly regulated in terms of, you know, actual enforcement. It's more one of those things that comes down to the individual's own ethics and morals. Um, to do it. And somebody says something like that to me, kind of off the record, I'm like, well, let's just try it with the anonymous data um, and see what happens. And it, it's always worked out fine. You know, it's just, I've never been at a point in 17 years of doing this work where I was like, oh, if we only had their names, you know, and their personal yeah. addresses and everything else. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'd like to Go back and revisit your point about architecture and data silos, especially in big organizations. So mm -hmm. we recently had a webinar with Salesforce where there was this really telling slide that was entitled Decades of System Complexity Limit Digital Transformation. <laughs> so the punchline of the slide was there's just a ton of data silos across a customer's journey that yes. really impede a business's ability to understand and serve them well. Yeah. So how do you ensure that data flows seamlessly and securely? I mean, I think you gave that um, brilliant analogy about the unstructured data being like the bricks and mortar, but is there anything else that you can add to that that might help listeners? So this, this is genuinely not necessarily a political statement. It's, it's, it's a factual one, right? Um, uh, when Donald Trump was elected president, um, I was very fortunate to be having a breakfast with somebody who had been in D.C. for 40 years. And I was curious. I was like, okay, well, obviously the Democrats are going to be opposing him and their interest groups. Um, but what do you think might stop him from doing something too radical? And my friend was very honest. He was like the bureaucracy. It was like if the individual federal employees, of which there's over a million of them, don't want to put one of his policies into place, they have a billion different ways of destroying it that he really can't do anything about. And this is one of those hard truths that a lot of time business leaders, especially in this context, need to accept. That if some one of those silos... It might have been siloed by accident because somebody wasn't thinking, but oftentimes it's siloed because somebody wants to protect it, yeah. right? It's very close. Like they don't want it getting out. They don't want somebody else using their data, presenting it in a way that they didn't approve of, maybe judging their team by it. And so how do you change that is such a tough question because that person in charge of that, just like the, 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 the bureaucrats, they have a billion different ways 
of slow walking your change so that it never happens and it absolutely undoes you. So the only way to overcome those situations is to set strict timelines that everybody is going to be hitting their changes by. And if they're not, you don't necessarily have to go in there and beat up the team. Sometimes it really is useful simply to set up new data flows, right? And that can be mind-boggling for people because they're like, well, I have 30 years of data here. Why do I have to start a new one? It's because, well, it's 30 years, but we can't extract it. We can't combine it. We can't link it, right? We can't push it together with other more useful data to do anything with it. So at least starting from scratch, it's a bigger investment, it's a little more time, but it'll actually get us to where we need to go. Um, so I think in those situations, you know, leadership just has to be very, very honest with themselves um, and can't get tied up in this notion that simply believing in digital transformation, believing in unsiloing the data um, and putting consultants in place to make it happen is going to work, right? That there's going to be so many obstacles that they never even dreamed of. Um, so, so I would, I always expect there to be tight timelines and I always expect there to be a backup plan just in case that data for whatever reason can't be extracted from that silo. It's, uh, it's interesting that, um, the second answer is about, uh, organizational culture, right? Like the first is about design and, and architecture and the second is about culture because especially in big organizations, that's what it's all about. Yeah. Um, in terms of organizational structure, are you seeing the rise of revenue ops teams in like the, the nomenclature? Is it moving from IT into something that is a little bit one foot in IT and one foot in kind of the go-to-market team area? I think it's world? more innovative organizations. Um, they're not, they're recognizing the power of IT um, of it going far beyond, you know, simply getting PowerPoint on somebody's computer or something like that. And yeah. understanding that, you know, the technology is fundamental to their success and bringing it into play, um, especially in such a, you know, fundamental area such as revenue operations is simply going to be tremendously helpful for the entire business. I think yeah. once again, you know, our habits take over and we have just terrible habits right? <laughs> and so it's one of those things where to get out of them, right? Examples have to be set, things have to be socialized, and leaders have to be shown a better way that by bringing these two together, uh, you can achieve exponentially improved performance. So are you seeing, um, what's the persona that is taking those roles on? Is it really IT folks who are migrating more into the ops side and into the go-to-market side, or is it is it all sorts that the um, more technically minded go-to-market folks are migrating into the system side? Oh, that's that's really actually. Um, I would say it's it's a bit of a combination of both. You know, one of those biggest questions across, I think, a lot of human endeavors, right, is what is innovation and i'm not even sure i'm as curious about that as i'm like what does an innovator look like um and so what i see with these organizations who are making that shift they have an innovative person who has an expertise in one of those areas and a tremendous amount of respect and curiosity for wow. um, the expertise in 
the other area. So if they're an IT person, they're really fascinated by what makes revenue and ops systems better. If they're a systems person, they're really curious about IT infrastructure and all of that. Those people tend to start the conversations that create the internal, um, you know, kind of organizational knowledge and culture that allows those to migrate together and start to perform together. Um, you know, I always, I always hire based upon how flexible I think a person can be, right? And I love one of the fundamental questions I always ask in an interview is tell me a time you were curious about something and what that looked like. Because I, I, you just need people who have that, well, why does that work? You know, why don't I just go talk to that person and see what they did and see if I can do anything with it. And maybe there's something that we can collaborate on. Um, those are really the people that are making the world run. And I think they're really the people who are, are, are building the future for us too. That's a, it's an excellent answer uh, that curiosity drives the innovation that is bringing these organizational structures together to support each other because you have to have one foot in both worlds anyway. Right, exactly. exactly. Um, is there a piece of advice you'd give a career changer or someone just beginning their career who might be interested in this space? Yeah, I love the fundamental thing of just looking at successful people and finding out how they did it. Um, so I always enjoy when, you know, a junior person or, you know, I, I, I teach occasionally at colleges, a student comes up to me because the answers are, are, are so basic. They can be a bit heartbreaking, right? It's just like data is not scary, right? So just start talking to people who understand it, understand how to use it. You don't have to be ever a data scientist or an engineer to understand what those systems are capable and what they're not. Um, and have the confidence to understand that people like me are really worried about getting old and no longer being relevant, <laughs> right? So having like a young person come up to me and ask me for, you know, a bit of advice, I'm always thrilled um, to go into that with them and identify for them where I see, um, you know, the current gaps and where I my concerns are, what's keeping me up at night, and almost always a person who starts investing their time in those um, is somebody who's going to be spending their time very wisely. Um, you know, one of my mentors always said the tech changes, the humans don't, right? You, you know, so there's fundamental things about us and how we interact with this tech that if you focus on um, and you study and you get used to uh, are really going to just be a huge boost uh, to a career um, and to your life in general. I've always found this work incredibly rewarding. And part of that is I get to help my friends too. You know, data affects my creative freelancer friends, just like it affects the CEOs who I work with. So just being able to help them out and understanding how to use Google Analytics, how to do SEO on their sites, you know, how to actually employ social, all those are data-informed things that I get to help my buddies with simply because I invested my time, you know, uh, years and years ago in understanding those and getting to use them. That's great. Good answer. Uh, last one would be, is for folks who are already in the position, do you have some resource or set of resources that you'd point them to to keep sharpening their own saw? Um, this is one of the more difficult 
questions, I think, for me to take because I honestly have not seen a lot of work that I consider to be that impressive when it comes to things like organizational change. Um, it can be a very gooey, mushy, you know, almost like kumbaya type uh, area. And I think it really has to be very hard nosed. Um, and it has to be, it has to match um, the kind of intensity a political campaign has in terms of that binary success or failure. Um, you know, Gregory uh, Sattel, S-A-T-E-L-L, um, I've always found him to be a really interesting thought leader in this, um, and I've continually gone to his resources and um, spoken to him a few times. Um, there is a company I know about there called Indigo Metrics, which is doing phenomenal work in terms of anonymized peer-to-peer valuations, um, which I love because nobody knows better how you're doing than the person sitting next to you a lot of times. And what Indigo is focused on is creating like a safe space for people to, you know, talk about themselves and their coworkers, rate them, and provide that, feed that, you know, data back into a system so managers can really operationalize and start to see um, the shifts that are taking place and focus in on the areas that are weak and address them as quickly as possible. Hmm. Those are two really good ones we haven't heard before, so thank you for that. <laughs> of course. And again, this has just been a terrific conversation, David. Um, I don't know if you know uh, Chip Conley, the um, Airbnb board member, but he has this term called the modern elder who is as wise as he is curious, and I think that applies to you uh tremendously so well, thank wonderful you. conversation i really appreciate all of the insights you gave us and it was really fun to hear your perspective yeah thank you so much betsy this has been a, a great interview and i really appreciate your thoughtful questions and time really enjoyed those thank you for tuning into the RevTech revolution podcast if you enjoyed this episode please don't forget to rate review and share this with colleagues who would benefit from it If you'd like to learn more about how Reva can help you improve your customer data operations, check out revaengine.com.